in um, January of 2008, uh, an article was published entitled, the name of the article was Yes to Love, No to Marriage. It was published in Newsweek magazine. So just a little over, um, I guess, 11 years ago now. And the article is uh, an interesting anecdote about the status of marriage in our society really from 10 years ago. It's not very long, and I want to read this little article, but before I do, I want to point out that in the years since this was published, so between January of 2008 and even today, 2019, the discussion about marriage has completely changed. In fact, five years ago, it was trendy to talk about gay marriage as if that were something that actually existed. But today, people find the talk about gay marriage boring, and they've moved on to more interesting and horrifying discussions, which we will address next week, Lord willing. But for now, listen to this article. So this is from Newsweek, 2008. Um, Lady writes this. She said, last year, during a family barbecue, concluding our annual visit to my beloved Jeff's Michigan hometown, his sister-in-law pulled him aside to ask why we weren't moving, on our re- moving our relationship down a church aisle. I thought there would be an announcement, she said. Jeff reminded her that we had just shared good news about buying a house together, a significant step in our three-year relationship. You two are doing it backwards, she said. She says this, I'm a 42-year-old woman who has lived my life mostly on my own terms. I've never sought a husband and have still experienced intense, affirming love. I've explored the world and myself and sought understanding, knowledge, and a sense of how I can best contribute. Ten years ago, I left New York, a New York career, to return to California and pursue a writer's life. Shortly thereafter, I met an intelligent teenager, also determined to live life on her own terms, who is now my fabulous foster daughter. Meeting Jeff, an intelligent, creative, thoughtful man, became the icing on a rich cake of a life not wasted cruising singles bars and pining over lost loves. Last year, Jeff asked me to marry him, and I willingly gave my heart to the intent of his question. We're committed to spending our future together, pursuing our dreams and facing life's challenges in partnership. Yet I do not need a piece of paper from the state to strengthen my commitment to Jeff. I do not believe in a religion that says romantic, committed love is moral only if couples pledge joint allegiance to God. I don't need a white dress to feel pretty and I have no desire to pretend I'm virginal. I don't need to have Jeff propose to me as if he's chosen me. I don't need a ring as a daily reminder to myself or others that I am loved. And I don't need Jeff to say publicly that he loves me because he says it privately, not just in words, but in daily actions. Our married friends say you can make a wedding and a marriage if you want, but that is not true. It's a specific institution with defining principles and values. If it weren't, there wouldn't be so-called marriage protection laws in the majority of this country's states. And for me, that's the bottom line when I consider cashing in on all the benefits our heterosexual relationship is entitled to. She writes in 2008, my gay friends can't do that. I don't want to send a message to anyone, including my daughter, who may someday choose a same-sex life partner, that the value of her relationships can be determined by law and the affirmation of others. 
Nonetheless, however unengaged I am to the institution of marriage, Jeff and I began to talk through the possibility of, listen to this, holding some sort of celebration of our relationship, but we wonder about Jeff's family. It'll be hard to get them to cross a state line for a commitment ceremony, he warned. If it's not a wedding, if there's no priest or piece of paper from your state, some people just don't give any weight to your commitment. Despite high divorce rates that remind us that such formalities offer no guarantee the relationship will endure. Undeterred, we've begun planning for our day-long event near the ocean that would allow us time for us to enjoy the company of friends and family without wasting time on obligatory cake cutting and flower tosses. I look forward to sharing that day with my parents and their respective spouses, my brother and extended family who've become accustomed to my independent life choices. But I want Jeff's parents to be there too so I can honor their role in raising such a loving son. I want his brothers and sister, their loved ones and children to join us and share our joy. They are loving people who have been accepting of me and I would cherish the chance to introduce them to my daughter, my family and our friends. Nonetheless, while I know the word married would mean something to them, something tangible that they could use when describing our life together, I can't do it. I'm Jeff's partner, his friend and his lover, and he is mine. The terms husband and wife wouldn't even begin to describe our relationship. We've set a date in July to hold our big event. No, we won't get married, but I hope our friends and family still come. By 2019 standards, that article seems almost quaint. If you watch the news, read any anything online about marriage, that article would seem like it harkens back to a refreshing time when cohabitation was the biggest problem, the biggest discussion. It would almost be refreshing to have a discussion simply about the meaning of marriage and the harm of cohabitation, of living together, and whether or not your marriage is bound up in a certificate issued by the state or the county or a religious ceremony. But culturally speaking, the church, or at least those Christians in, the, in these public discussions of such things, we actually lost that argument years ago. But Christians, by and large, and I'm speaking very generally here, Christians, by and large, stopped talking about the Bible. They stopped taking a call to repentance and belief in the gospel seriously. And churches stopped holding their members accountable uh, through the clear teaching of Scripture on this and also through church discipline. And as a result, the sanctity of marriage has been greatly harmed. It's even been co-opted by sexual revolutionaries who've turned it into something that it's not. And divorce has become just kind of an unfortunate yet increasingly common occurrence in the life of the church in everyday society and in many of our very own families. Many of us in this room, myself included, have been impacted in some way by divorce. We know firsthand the pain and have seen the ramifications on so many involved. And so I would say right now that for those of you who have this as part of your testimony, this church, hear me very carefully here, this church is willing to weep with those who weep. You need to know that. You need to weep with those who weep. And you do. And I believe the most important way to do that is for every person here to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, as James writes. But there's a common misconception out there today. 
You may have heard that the divorce rate among Christians is roughly the same as it is with the world, but that is actually simply not true. Um, the truth is that the statistics regarding marriage and singleness and divorce, etc., those statistics are actually getting harder and harder to compile because the variables are changing rapidly. So in our society today, the definition of marriage is open to interpretation. Serial cohabitation is on the rise. People living together for a few years and then moving on. That's on the rise. Common law marriage, which is not marriage, is becoming very popular, especially amongst older populations. Homosexual unions, so-called gay marriage, is increasingly fashionable. Conscious uncoupling. You've probably heard that term recently. Simply a new way of saying something like amicable divorce. It's gaining traction as a way to end a marriage and yet still feel good about yourself, still get along with your ex. In the 1980s, which are often remembered as a decade of decadence and selfishness, I am a proud child of the 80s. Proud in the wrong ways, probably. The divorce rate in the United States, it did approach 50% in the 80s. Today, it's about 39%. And in the church, it's estimated to be between 15 and 20%. It's actually better than we've been told. Many sociologists believe that the the drop in the divorce rate is due to changing attitudes about marriage and, and even largely due to the millennial generation, that generation a little bit younger than me. So couples in 2016, for example, were 18% less likely to, to divorce than couples in the same age group in 2008. The reason for this is that people are getting married later in life and cohabitation, serial cohabitation, is getting much more common. Marriage is increasingly seen as a status symbol or a mark of accomplishment rather than the mark of the beginning of adulthood. But this is not the way that God established marriage to be. So I want to read two passages of Scripture. The first is the actual founding of marriage as an institution from Genesis chapter 2. And then the second is the implications of that founding for the church. But we're primarily going to be in just a couple of verses this morning, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. So I want to read Genesis 2, 18 to 25. And then we're going to flip right over immediately and read uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And don't get hung up on those statistics and stories. This is where we really need to see what this is all about. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, for I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, this was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Ephesus, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Father, help us to understand these things. Give us ears to hear as we read through your word. It is my prayer that I would decrease and that Christ would increase, that he might be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. If you found yourself on the receiving end of one of Paul's letters, um, and it included this passage from Ephesians, how do you think you'd react? Your church is a few years old. Um, It's the only church in town. You're the only Christians that you know, probably. Ephesus is a big city. Uh, Paul had spent three years there, and he writes this letter back to them later. Probably Timothy is your pastor. The Apostle John later on will be in the area ministering. And you receive this letter and in it he writes those words that I just read. How would you react to that? Let me ask it a different way. If, you're a, if you were an unbeliever or maybe a very new Christian with a limited knowledge of the Bible, you'd never heard these things before, and you read these verses from Ephesians, what would be your response Well, the world likes to read passages like that and say, see, Christians are misogynists. Or they'll yell the word patriarchy. Still other people will read this and say, Paul doesn't actually mean what he says here, even though he says it pretty clearly. But if we trust God's word and we take these things at face value, then the words mean what they say. So let me ask you this question. What does this have to do with the glory of Christ? How do questions regarding marriage relationships, how husbands and wives relate to each other, how do they remind us of Christ's eternal glory? Well, the Bible clearly tells us here in verses 31 and 32. And those two verses are going to be really the focus of the rest of our time together. So let's make a a case for for the sanctity of marriage reflecting the glory of Christ. So verses 31 and 32 again. 
Paul writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Sometimes when we come to an epistle's imperatives, those are the, the commands of Paul, Paul's instructions here in this letter. Sometimes we look at them as, as a kind of a, a PS to the rest of the letter. Or sometimes we might look at them as sort of a, a standalone passage. But here, as in all of Paul's letters, he's giving specific teaching that flows out of the previous chapters. In other words, these instructions for husbands and wives are connected to everything else he's written about in the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians teaches us about God's purposes for us in Christ. So for Christians, including Christian husbands and wives, the opening verses of the letter, the the first, like verses uh, 3 to 14, They remind us that in Christ we have received from God every spiritual blessing. They remind us, Paul writes to us, that that he chose us to be holy and blameless, including in our marriage relationships. He writes to us that our adoption is in Christ, that we are a different family now. We're in a different family than we were before. It reminds us that through him we receive redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He reminds us and explains to us that we are co-heirs with Christ, that our hope is in Christ, and because of Christ, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our salvation until we acquire possession of it, meaning until we get to heaven, until Christ returns and we are with him for eternity. And none of these things are things that we have done. We're completely dependent upon the work of Christ. And the root of this is in what we sometimes call the covenant of redemption, which is that agreement among the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, before the foundation of the world, that covenant that they made with one another, that God would redeem for himself a people for his own possession, and then exactly how that would be established the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. And it was established with the covenant of grace, we call it. The new covenant that Christ made with his church, with his own blood, and for his own glory. We're reminded in the book of Ephesians that without Christ we are children of disobedience and objects of God's wrath. That we, we are completely dead and dwelling in darkness. Uh, apart from Christ, we are destined really for eternal weeping. We are the objects of scorn and, and ridicule. But God. But God. Jesus looked upon our helpless estate. And he joined us together with himself. In Christ, we are resurrected and made alive. We are united with Christ and, and we are brought from darkness and into light. We are, we are raised up as bright shining lights of righteousness in Christ. In Christ we are seated at God's right hand and are now the object of God's favor. Because you've been joined together with Christ as a bride and groom, 
as Christians, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, your future of being destined for a place of torment has been replaced by eternal membership in the body of Christ. Because Christ has loved his church, he has sanctified her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present his bride, the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, he says, that she might be holy and without blemish. And as he always lives to make intercession for us, we live to glorify him. That is our chief end. That is our chief purpose in life, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And one of the ways that we do this, that that we glorify Christ, is in and through our relationships. Ephesians talks a lot about this. The world should be able to see, outsiders, those who are not a part of the church, those of of our family, and even those inside the church, But people should be able to see that we are joined together in covenant relationship with Christ in the way that we interact with one another. They should be able to see that. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the context of the husband and wife relationship that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 5 our glorious salvation, because of the glory of Christ and because of what he has done, because we have been urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, all of our relationships are to be marked with humility and gentleness, with patience. We are to bear with one another in love. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is a living out of the two greatest commandments of Scripture, love for God and love for neighbor. Now, whether you are married or not, whether you've ever been married or hope to be married someday, whether you have a good marriage or not, as Christians, we believe that marriage is instituted by God at creation. It is affirmed in the New Testament as one man, one woman, till death do us part, And we believe that marriage is a reflection of the glory of Christ. It's a reflection of the gospel and the glory of Christ, and that should be seen in our relationships. We're told back in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 5, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is the will of the Lord in these things? Back in the opening verses of Ephesians, We read uh, that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, which is redemption, which is unity with Christ, being, being brought back into covenant relationship with him. We also know from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that God has chosen his church to, quote, reveal the manifold wisdom of God. And she does this, the church does this, by proclaiming both in word and in deed. So in preaching the word of God and in love for one another, the church proclaims the manifold wisdom of God in the glory of Christ. There's, there's no other name by which people must can be saved. We are to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. Can you see how this looks in, in everyday, ordinary life in the church? 
Look up at verse 15. So Ephesians 5, just, just look up at verse 15. He tells the church, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I think if we watch the news today, we might say these days are evil too. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to God with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And with that, really verse 21, or that whole paragraph there, Paul sends us on a trajectory. In fact, Paul will go on to write about several specific relationships in which we as Christians, as his church, must revere or glorify Christ, starting here in verse, what is it, verse 22, with the marriage relationship. And the scripture teaches us in verses 31 and 32 that God designed marriage to reflect his glory. In fact, verse 31 is nearly a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So as we see more and more um, in our world, and the world is getting smaller, and it's getting closer, and it's affecting families, hometowns, neighbors, as we see more and more demands for equality, as we see more and more parades and the world being worldly, there are two truths that you need to remember, that we as Christians need to remember, two doctrines that we need to hold fast to if we are to faithfully glorify Christ in word and in deed. And the first is this, marriage was founded by God in creation. Marriage was founded by God in creation. Marriage is not a governmental matter. Here's what I mean by that. Really, I mean the same thing that, um, you'll understand this, the same thing Thomas Jefferson meant when he wrote in the Declaration of Independence. He said this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these, among those rights, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So he is saying there, and this is the whole point of the Declaration of Independence, the government doesn't grant those rights. God does. It's the duty of government to recognize those rights. It's the same with marriage. God established marriage. The government then is just tasked with recognizing marriage for what God created it to be. Marriage was established specifically by God himself before the fall of mankind, before sin entered into the world. That's why the Apostle Paul goes right back to Genesis chapter 2 right there in his instruction. Jesus does the same thing, by the way. He quotes the same verse, Genesis 2.24. He does it in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, and in Mark chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. And he affirms the sanctity of marriage. The context that Jesus is talking about is divorce. But I want to talk about something a little bit bigger than that. That's part of it. But I want to go back to Genesis 2.24 about the establishment itself. And so no matter what immorality the world will come up with next and call it marriage, both Jesus and Paul 
both, both of them quote Genesis 2.24 and specifically state the exclusivity of marriage being the union of one man and one woman. And this verse, Genesis 2.24, is the crowning statement in the story of God's creation of Adam and Eve and the garden that he gave them to tend. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2 because I want you to observe these things. Just look over this chapter, really beginning in verse 4. If you just kind of let your eyes wander over the chapter, you can see that most of it is a more detailed account of the sixth day of creation. God had formed Adam from the dust, verse 7 tells us. And he also recognized in verse 18 that he had not yet created a a helper fit for him. So Genesis 2.18 says... And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That that means a a necessary ally suitable for him. Now, Now, don't lose the forest for the trees here because this is a demonstration of the truth of the previous two verses. So look up at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God makes it clear in those two verses, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, when he's he's talking about food, when he's giving them a command, he makes it clear, and then really throughout the rest of the Bible, that only God, that God alone knows what is good for his creatures. It is not good that you eat of that tree. Do not do it. God alone knows what is good for his creatures. And then beginning in verse 18, he gives a clear example of something that is good for his creation. Eve. The establishment of a, of a marriage, of a wife for Adam. Adam evidently, as you read through this, he didn't understand that it was not good for him to be alone. Sin had not entered into the world. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't questioning God's goodness in his singleness. Rather, he was content in his work, in his relationship with God. That's verses 19 and 20. But there was no helper suitable for him. There was no other one who was made in the image of God who would be able to help him fulfill the mandate that God had issued back in chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's no one able to help him with that. And and I just want to point out this isn't um, kind of hyper-individualized. In other words, this isn't about creating a soulmate for Adam or the one. Although I guess you could argue it is about creating the one because there's just one. What this means is that woman is suitable for man in order for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. That's what it means. And homosexuality does the opposite of that. It destroys In fact, it cannot be fruitful and multiply except through converting people by by preaching what they believe is their good news, which is not good news. But God's design is that only womankind is suitable for mankind. That's what he's saying here. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is not unimportant here to point out that the one flesh intimacy that they shared was the design of God from their earliest breaths. Woman is created from the rib of man, the scripture tells us. And so both man and woman were made of the same substance. They are both in the image of God. And those three images there, those three uh, kind of verbs or descriptors in verse uh, Genesis 2.24, to leave, to hold fast, and, and that idea of one flesh, they're meant to express two concepts. They're meant to express the unity of Adam and Eve, and also that they are a new creation. So first, let's talk about their unity. And we're going to bring this into Ephesians here. So in Ephesians, Paul summarizes the, the husband and wife relationship, not with the terms lead and submit. That's sometimes what we think of, but that's not his summary. P- people will get hung up on that, but, but rather he uses the terms love and respect. Listen to Ephesians 5.33. The very next verse says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect. And this love that the husband is to be engaged in from the context of, of Paul's letter is a love that, that nourishes and cherishes. In fact, it is a putting into practice day in and day out the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He even uses some similar language there when he says no one ever hated his own flesh. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the the context of a biblical marriage, the world is to see the husband loving his closest neighbor as himself, sacrificially giving his own life. And then along the exact same lines, he uses this word respect. In a Christian marriage, the way a wife respects her husband is designed to illustrate for all to see the church's respect for Christ. She respects her husband because she recognizes his God-given position as head of the family. She lovingly respects his, his loving, godly, sacrificial leadership. As our head, Christ loves and gives himself for his people. He brings the church into being through his atoning death. He nourishes and and cherishes the church, his bride. He sanctifies her and he is concerned for her holiness and and her purity. The relationship between Christ and the church is is a spiritual covenantal union. And it was God's design from creation that marriage be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people. Jesus Christ left the Father's side in order to redeem for himself a people for his own possession, whom he will hold fast to, because we are one with him. That means that not only are we in unity with Christ, but we're also a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the idea of the Husband leaving his family that he has been a part of, starting a new family, 
holding fast to his wife, starting something new, new creation. Christ is holding fast to his bride. He has redeemed her. He has brought her from death to life for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Marriage was founded by God in creation and is to be understood as a picture of Christ's love and the salvation of the church. And this really brings us kind of in conclusion um, to the second doctrine that we need to hold fast to if we are to faithfully glorify Christ in both word and deed. And that is this. It's verse 32 of Ephesians 5. The mystery is revealed in Christ. The mystery is revealed in Christ. The world will tell us, um, it'll either tell you that marriage is a contract, so if you do this, if you do this, this, and this for me, then I will do that and that and that for you. But either of us can get out of this arrangement if we stop feeling things for each other. If it goes away. Or it will tell you, marriage is just simply a cultural construct. It's simply an issuing of a piece of paper by the county, by the state, by the government, by the man. And who are they to tell me who I'm supposed to love? Or they might tell you, it's simply a religious tradition. It's getting outdated and unnecessary. I don't need a priest or a preacher to tell me who I'm allowed to love. Maybe they'll actually tell you. Maybe the world will actually tell you that marriage is serious and beautiful. But love is love and you can't help who you love. But the scriptures tell us that marriage is a gift from God meant to reflect Christ's glory through his relationship with his own bride, the church. Again, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul here calls biblical marriage a profound mystery. But the New Testament idea of a mystery is different than sometimes what we think. See, when Paul talks about a mystery, he's not really talking about something to be figured out, like a murder mystery. Or even something that is completely unknowable and just mysterious. In fact, this mystery has been revealed to the saints. Paul tells us explicitly in Colossians chapter 1, Verse 25 to 28, Paul writes this, speaking of the church, he says, of, uh, of the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, Paul says. The mystery is Christ himself, whom we proclaim. Whom we proclaim in word and in deed. Whom we proclaim when we stand up here and preach. When we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors. And at every 
at every wedding ceremony, and in our relationships, whether we're married or not, but especially in those closest relationships that God has established between husband and wife. When the world asks us why we care so much about the sanctity of marriage, um, sanctity, set-apart holiness of marriage, the answer is because of the glory of Christ, our great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And so let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're talking about the foundation of marriage here because it glorifies Christ and was created to glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand these things, not just simply to have an argument, not to have a ready argument with the world, but that we might glorify Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That we might glorify Christ in our own marriages. That we might glorify Christ in our church as we relate to one another. That the world might see when they look at a Christian husband and wife, that the world might see that we are Christians because of their love for one another. That Christ might be reflected in all of our relationships and especially in our marriage relationships in the church. Father, we praise you for, um, for this truth. Help us to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.